This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to Rihanna Patrick on ABC Radio. Now, look, stay with me for a second because this is going to sound a little bit weird, but I'd like you to imagine a trip to the toilet. Yeah, I know, it sounds disgusting. Stick with me, though. So, you are, well, you finish up. Then you press press the flush button. Water comes out, it washes everything away, and then you walk to the sink. You turn the handle, water comes pouring out of the tap. You wash your hands, 20 seconds, of course. And there's also probably a shower or a bath nearby, which means more handles that you can turn to get water on demand. Now, it's easy to take modern plumbing for granted. When you need water, most of the time, you just have to press a button, and there it is. But this is obviously a pretty recent invention. So what did they actually do hundreds or even thousands of years ago? Well, if you've ever heard of an aqueduct, you'll know that the Romans certainly had some tricks up their sleeve. Dr. Craig Barker is here for Can You Dig It? He's going to take you on a bit of a deep dive into water in Roman times. Craig, why are the Romans famous for water supply? Uh, before I answer that, I should say we're, we're going to do a deep dive into water supply, not into the not sewerage into the system toilet. necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the water Sorry. in the toilet, the other. The, the other. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> oh, that's a visual I but, don't uh, need. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, no, you are right. It, it, look, it's funny, as, as an archaeologist, when I, when I meet people and say I'm you know, working on a, on a Roman period site, one of the first questions people obviously ask lots of questions about gladiators but uh (laughs) one of the first questions you get about is is roman you know why are the romans so good at working with water and and transporting water and and so on so i thought it'd be a good chance for us to actually explore some of what we know about how urban centers within the roman empire uh, were able to harness water and supply water and some of the ways that the Romans use water because it's it, it, it's very, very interesting that culturally they were a very water-intensive society um, and we see that with things like um, with bathing and so on. But um, I guess ultimately it's part of a larger uh, uh, um, uh, societal uh, reflection in which that the Romans were excellent at engineering. Um, they were not one of the great inventors of, of ancient cultures, um, although having said that, there are some very notable exceptions. But um, uh, what they were good at was was good, hard, solid engineering and making things work. And the way that water could be transported over kilometres and in some cases over you know, tens of kilometres, hundreds of kilometres, um, to actually be brought into an urban centre and then distributed for both private and public needs um, is really an excellent excellent reflection in terms of how the Romans saw themselves as urban innovators and urban designers. So they are famous for water supply, quite rightfully, um, but in large part just because of the sheer engineering skill in terms of bringing water over long distances to be able to use it. Were they the first ancient culture to harness water? No, not by a long not yeah, not by a long shot. Um, and you've got numerous examples of you know Egypt and various Middle Eastern cultures obviously channeling water and diverting water for agricultural purposes. Um, numerous ancient societies and ancient cities that had uh, some degree of um, use of water for sanitation, so you know rather than just 
dumping waste products into the nearest stream or river or creek. Um, you've actually got sort of some degree of self-flushing uh, watering systems in places like Knossos in Minoan Crete um, on, on, on the Greek island. Um, in some of the places on the Indus Valley, for example, there was actually uh, some degree of flushing um, a system for, for, for sewage waste and so on. Um, so they're not the first ancient culture of, of you know, the Mediterranean or Middle East or, or Asian worlds to, to do it. What in many ways they were the first to do was to do it on a large scale. And the idea of water supply for drinking industry and agriculture um, in both uh, urban and, and semi-urban areas um, becomes one of the consistent landmarks of, of Roman Romanization, which is a very loaded phrase and, and is, is yeah, much discussed by ancient historians and archaeologists. But that idea of anywhere in the Mediterranean world, anywhere within Europe, anywhere within the Middle East, where the Romans settled and occupied, you have some degree of uh, infrastructure created around water. Now, it's also worthwhile bearing in mind, though, that um, as excellent as they were at water supply, there's a certain degree of mythology that's been taken on board. And that, um, you know, actual detailed analysis of a lot of uh, the sewage system, for example, of Rome itself, suggests that the sewers were probably not as widespread as you know, most of us would think about if we did ever stop to think about ancient Roman plumbing and um, we're probably nowhere near as efficient um, and as effective as as some uh, 20th century scholarship may have led us to believe. So the famous Roman sewerage system and the, the Colica Maxima within Rome itself, um, you know, some relatively uh, detailed investigation um, by a number of scholars, but particularly by Anne Koleski um, um, Ostro, um, in a in a book written a few years ago, um, yeah, you know, she and, and and others have actually been able to prove that some of the channels within that broader sewage system would have blocked, you know, very early within a year of usage. Um, and so, what is interesting, of course, is that you the Romans really needed a whole uh, army of the workforce to keep that infrastructure flowing. And um, yeah, what is interesting is is at what point in the history of the city of Rome it was being cleared out and at what points it wasn't because that's actually reflective of bigger and broader political and uh, economic and social changes taking place right across the empire. And Craig, you mentioned that, you know, that they were able to transport water over extremely large distances, particularly for the time. How did they do that? Yeah, look, it's, it's largely through um, um, the use of aqueducts, okay? And... Um, an aqueduct is basically any type of channel um, which would supply water into urban areas. So again, within the Roman context, it was being used for public baths. Um, it was being used, obviously, for, for sewage systems and latrines and so on. Um, it was being used for fountains and fountain houses. And again, anyone who's been to modern Rome will, of course, just know how many fountains there are around around the city. Um, uh, in some cases, being supplied to private houses, but uh, in most cases, it's it's going to public taps and, and you're taking your container or your bucket of uh, with you to actually, or you're sending your slaves out to do it to collect water for the for the family household. But but for certainly the elite, um, there was actually water coming into um, into private houses, and then obviously also for industry and agriculture, as we mentioned before. And really, an aqueduct is um, 
is any type of structure in which water can be moved using gravity alone. Um, overall, what you need is some sort of uh, down gradient. Um, that gradient is, is often um, carved out of stone or is reinforced by using brick or concrete. Um, the steeper the gradient, the faster the flow of water. Um, but generally what you're trying to get from an engineering perspective, and this is again a reflection of a Roman excellence in engineering and mathematics, um, is this idea of, um, <clears throat> pardon me, of, of this idea of um, a, a very minor gradient. Look, probably one of the most famous aqueducts to survive is the Pont de Garde in, 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 in Roman Gaul, modern France, which supplied water to Nîmes. Uh, to the city of Nîmes, um, and its gradient was 34 centimetres over a kilometre. So it's a very, um, a very gentle slope. Um, so you, most of the aqueducts are actually buried beneath the ground, um, but in areas like the Pont de Garde, where you've got a valley or a lowland, the Romans would construct bridges in order to keep that gradient level. And uh, this is one of the great Roman inventions, is, is concrete. Um, the use of concrete enabled the construction of arches, which enabled the idea of multiple stories. And so in the case of the Pont de Garde, which I think is about 40, 48 or 49 metres above the, the surface of the, uh, the creek below it or the river below it, you've got this gentle gradient, which is bringing water from a natural source into the urban centre of the Roman city. So, uh, uh, you know, what's extraordinary is just, um, you know, how they were able to control water supply, um, to direct water supply to where it needed to go. Um, once once you got to the areas of, of urban locality, and just how um, just how gentle the sloping was. There are some cases where you know um, the entire aqueduct system was closed down because of an earthquake or or very minor damage so it was it was such a gentle incline and again Pompeii is a very good example of this that the uh, you know one of the key um, uh, evidence of uh, a major earthquake that took place in 62 AD so uh, 17 years before the volcanic eruption um, is that the water supply for many of the houses was was blocked and interrupted and it's this that ever so gentle moving of the uh, of the ground completely broke down the entire system mm. so it was incredibly sophisticated so craig how did roman sanitation work then you yeah, well, again um so obviously water is being brought in from from long distances through these aqueduct systems um and then brought to a whole series of draining systems that are, are obviously underground um, and one of the things of course was that uh, uh, we'll talk more about this in a moment I suspect that um, uh, toilets were largely communal so what you just needed to have was was water flowing through um, to take away any waste product and, and uh, remove it um, in the case of Rome itself what's interesting was that the the very first um, uh, aqueduct was actually built in uh, 312 BC and it was uh, used to uh, supply um, the cattle market area so again a lot of it would have been for um, uh, not just water for, for the local residents in the area but also sort of getting rid of waste products um, from, from that purpose. Um, by the third century AD Rome had 11 aqueducts so, uh, supplying a million people so um, you know a very uh, high intensity of water but in large part because although Rome itself was built on the Tiber um, the water from the Tiber itself was notoriously 
um, uh, didn't taste particularly good and had water pollution and uh, waterborne disease issues. So part of this, part of the, the the whole point of the system was that obviously once you once you have a city that reaches a million people, you need to be able to get rid of that waste product as, as cleanly and as as efficiently as you can. Um, unfortunately, of course, a lot of this meant it ended up being dumped into the Tiber itself. So it wasn't necessarily uh, uh, sanitation in terms of modern urban sanitation, but it was a, at least a very concept of getting rid of human waste and animal waste and getting it away from where people were living as quickly as possible. Mm. The communal toilets, was that a thing for, for a long time? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And... Um, I think by by modern sensibilities would have been um, quite an extraordinary concept. I think if we ever time travel back to Rome, um, I would suggest everyone crosses their legs uh, for as long as they can while they while they're visiting, because um, uh, you know. And again, you see this right across the empire. Um, some of our listeners may have seen you know toilets in places like Ephesus and Turkey, or, or you know, there's there's a whole series around Rome itself. Um, a good example is is one of the communal toilets in the Palatine Hill in Rome itself. Now, this was first excavated in 1913, and the Italian archaeologists who ran the excavations in the, the report were very coy. Um, they must have known it was a toilet, but they referred to, you know, they, they referred to all sorts of, you know, uses of the water in the space. And it's quite, quite clear what you're looking at is a long drop, but um, uh, up to 20 people seated within the same area using it. Um, and, uh, you know, just in case our listeners are a bit squeamish about this idea, um, you know, uh, a modern survey, <clears throat> pardon me, it's been published again relatively recently, but a modern survey said that the seats themselves were around about 43 centimetres high, they, of course, were stone, but would have had a wooden seat over the top of it, um, large wooden planks with holes cut in them. Um, and those holes are 56 centimetres between um, drops. So you're very, very close to the person next to you. <laughs> You've got to get cosy. Um, you would have been very cosy. Now, of course, obviously you were in clothes, so it's not quite as visible but yes it's, it's by modern standards it would not have been a pleasant experience and indeed even by roman standards it wouldn't have been a particularly pleasant experience because one of the issues with long drops as as you know any of us in australia have been out on farms or whatever um you know from the old days will know um is flies and insects and other things that until the invention of the s-bend this was a major issue even if the waste products are being washed away of course there is um you know, lingering smell and so on. So what is interesting is that many latrines in Rome and indeed across the empire had small shrines, small, what was called a lararium, a small religious shrine um, dedicated to the goddess Fortuna. Um, it's almost like you were getting divine protection every time you were going to use the facilities. And I suspect that there was probably a certain degree of, you know, um, uh, we talked about graffiti earlier. There's a lot of graffiti, of course, in Roman cities, but, but within the toilets themselves, very little surviving graffiti. You were in and out as quickly as you could. Yeah, it's not a place you'd like to linger from the sounds of that, certainly. No, no not at all, not at all. No. Now, uh, let's talk about the Roman water pipes. Was there lead in those? Um, yes, there was, but it wasn't the only item that was used. So, obviously, again, this idea of bringing water in, through um through the aqueducts and then trying to distribute it to to various locations you needed a whole system of drainage um and again the the infrastructure would vary a little bit 
depending upon where in the Roman world you were. But, um, um, you know, uh, uh, the predominantly used item was ceramic or terracotta um, drain pipes. Um, and again, you know, as someone who works on a Roman archaeological site, we find a lot of these pipes um, in, in, in ceramic, some in stone, they're not so common, but, but certainly with male and female fitting parts of the ceramic ones. Terracotta was the preferred method. And indeed Vitruvius, the famous Roman architect of the first century BC who wrote a, a massive um, encyclopedia on, um, on architectural um, trends, really describes how terracotta is the preferred method for, 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 for um, or the preferred material for uh, building pipes mm. uh, for drainage and for sewerage. But lead pipes were being used. And this is a, an idea that pops up every now and then. Um, kind of first really floated seriously in around about 1900. And then sort of every 20 years in the 20th century, someone would publish a theory about lead poisoning, that the lead content in the water supplies um, was, was at such a high level that um, the, the, the Roman consumers of the water were, um, <clears throat> pardon me, were actually poisoning themselves with these high contents of lead. The most recent book was one published in the early 80s um, and it got poo-pooed by a lot of, uh, uh, pardon the pun, <laughs> but it got, uh, uh, very, um, it got uh, very much uh, frowned upon by uh, a lot of ancient historians and, and classical archaeologists at that point in time because it was effectively this regurgitating old ideas. So in 2014, a major study actually dredged um, sediment from the portus, from the, from the port of Rome, and from a channel which connected the port to the Tiber River. And the researchers compared lead isotopes in sediment samples with those in preserved Roman piping. And what they determined was that Roman taps um, that supplied water that contained lead contained up to 100 times more lead than local spring water did. Oh. However, this was not at levels likely to be considered harmful and indeed probably lower than, than um, uh, lead levels in, in many modern cities, for example, as well. So I think once and for all it's been conclusively proved that whilst lead was used um, yeah, the, the theory of lead poisoning resulting in the collapse of the Roman Empire can be put to bed once and for all. It's a myth. Oh, well, that's good. I'm sure someone will come up with it as a theory again. <laughs> we'll have to go back to the research. Seems to be one of those things. I'm that, sure someone will. <laughs> yeah, it pops up every now and then. On ABC Radio, you're with Rihanna Patrick.